Hello, everyone, and welcome to your Christmas Eve episode of American Prestige. Jake, you might want to cut that. No, Jake, make it louder. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison. Derek, how are you doing on this fine Christmas Christmas week, Christmas Eve? Doing okay. We've got a lot of people coming tomorrow. We do a Christmas Eve thing so for family, so I got a lot of cooking to do, but... I, I'm but, uh, a Christmas Eve traveler. As a as, nice. a, as a Jew, I just nice. go around to various Christmas <laughs> Eves, just, just crashing parties everywhere. Nice. I'm a party crasher. I'm a party crasher. So uh, I'm sure everyone is interested in what's going on in the world this week because there's quite a lot going on in the world this week. Uh, so why don't we just start at the beginning uh, with uh, Libya and the postponed election? So Derek, tell us about Libya. Yeah. So, I mean, Libya was supposed to have a presidential election. Um, well, it's Thursday, December 23rd. They were supposed to have it tomorrow, uh, December 24th. Um, but I mean, the international community in particular, I think, viewed this election as the final step or, or maybe the beginning of the final phase of Libya's transition out of civil war to a regular functioning, in theory, at least, society. Um, but it's been it's been apparent for quite some time that they weren't going to be able to have this election. The whole process, the electoral process, has has been bedeviled by disagreement about the candidates, about the electoral law, accusations of corruption. It's been a very rancorous process. Uh, so not much surprise, I would suggest, on the part of most Libyans. And for one thing, Libya still doesn't really technically have a constitution that's another part of the process that they probably should have put first i think before voting for offices but um they haven't established that there was an electoral law that was promulgated a few months ago by aguila saleh the the speaker of one of libya's two parliaments the one in the east uh there were a lot of questions about whether he had the right to to do that whether he did it according to proper procedure which of course they don't really have a proper procedure because they don't have a functioning constitution uh so it's a it's a big mess and and uh the election has been disputed uh pretty widely the plan for an election has been disputed pretty widely uh lately the the issue has become uh, some of the candidates uh, who are running, uh, and there are some legal challenges against their candidacies. For example, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, the son of former Libyan ruler Muammar Gaddafi. There are a lot of people who, for some reason, I don't know, uh, don't want him to run for president uh, and have challenged his candidacy on the grounds that he was uh, actually, I think, convicted at one point, or at least uh, indicted for war crimes. Uh, um, Khalifa Haftar, who was one of the two main kind of uh, protagonists, I guess, or antagonists, depending on your point of view, uh, in the Civil War, who is a former general for, of uh, Muammar Gaddafi's turned CIA asset, turned uh, basically warlord at this point. Uh, he's, he's like running, me on Christmas Eve. He's just going yeah, everywhere. exactly. He's going everywhere. Um, he's, he wants to run. There's a lot of you know opposition to that, as you might imagine. Uh, the, the man who was uh, until recently, the interim prime minister of Libya, uh, Abdul Hamid uh, Dabiba, uh, was also planning to run, or Dabiba, I'm not sure which, uh, was also planning to run or announced his candidacy, even though as the interim prime minister, when he took that office, he, he in- agreed 
not to run in this election. Um, and also the electoral law require, would have required him to uh, stand down from his previous job much earlier than he did. So there were procedural questions uh, about his candidacy. None of these things have been worked out. Uh, electoral officials hadn't even promulgated a final list of candidates, which meant nobody could campaign, uh, which meant if you were a lesser known candidate, if you weren't Haftar, Gaddafi, or somebody who had a lot of name recognition, you were basically screwed. Uh, so there's a lot, been a lot of kind of nervousness and tension around this election. So it is not surprising that on Wednesday, uh, uh, a committee in, in uh, the Libyan House of Representatives announced that uh, or declared that it's impossible, it's going to be impossible to hold this election. The previous day, the National Electoral Committee had sort of ordered all the local poll workers and electoral councils and, and, you know, those sorts of things that would implement the vote uh, to stand down, which m more or less canceled the election without a, a formal announcement. But now it's it's pretty much... Um, clear that there will not be an election tomorrow. It's not clear when there will be an election. They're, they're supposedly uh, going to meet to discuss that next week. Um, but this is a blow to the transition. And yet, I think holding a flawed and highly disputed election probably would have been a bigger blow Worse. to the transition. Yeah. So this is probably the lesser of two evils. So even uh, more than 10 years, actually, after the U.S. intervention, the NATO-led intervention um, into Libya, we still have not seen any real stability and just no, long-term consequences. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, we, we did it. USA, USA. <laughs> uh, speaking <clears throat> of elections, uh, why don't we take the train from Libya to Chile uh, and talk about friend of the pod, Gabriel Boric. Um, I've heard it pronounced Boric. I've heard it pronounced Boric. Boric. Do you know which one is correct? Boric. Uh, I think Boric it's, or Boric. it's Croatian, and I'm not uh, oh, so it probably my Croatian, Boric. so it's probably Boric or Boric. Yeah. Uh, uh, very interesting. So uh, what's been going on? How is the response to this, you know, perhaps uh, indicative of a new pink tide? What are they calling it now? The pink turn, I think, in, uh, in Latin America. Yeah, well, so, I mean, we should tell people he won, because that's a new development since oh, yes. uh, the last episode uh, on Sunday. Um, after we had talked, I think, last week about the polling, and it had been kind of all over the map, and there was some polling, uh, you know, was showing an increasingly tight race and maybe, uh, you know, proto-fascist or fascist friendly uh, jose antonio fascist might, fascist adjacent yeah fascist adjacent uh that he might be in a position to actually win but it turned out boris won um fairly handily actually i think with yep. uh, around 56 percent of the vote i'm very happy and full of hope now change can happen change that we have wanted for more than two years or for 30 years yeah it's uh i mean it's a it's a really big deal uh you've taught you mentioned here the the regional implications the, the sort of return turn of left or at least center left we'll see how boritz actually governs he is a leftist by background but uh he, you know he's but a fan to of grunge so of i grunge, trust yeah. him loves um, grunge he, wore nirvana uh, shirts i think he wore a deftone shirt or something along those lines <laughs> nice. so definite definite friend of the pod well we should definitely get him on he's been asking for a while but uh, well, i think he's ready I, yeah, it's probably time i guess yeah um <laughs> uh, I mean, he's going to have to work with a uh, a Congress that is probably not going to be super friendly to him uh, ideologically. So uh, that will be something to watch. Does um, he have the mechanism of an e of an executive order there? I am not familiar with Chilean domestic uh, politics uh, because mean, that's what 
Basically, yeah. that's what transformative leaders seem to do in presidential systems is that they just like overwhelm people with executive orders. So does he have that? Do you know? Um, I mean, he does have some latitude. I don't know the the specific uh, mechanisms, but I mean, certainly as president, the, the, the Chilean presidency is a uh, is a pretty powerful office. It's not, um, you know, it's not one of these like uh kind of ceremonial offices so he he will have mechanisms to to do things um but you know as we've seen even here in the u.s with a a, a congress that is entirely controlled by the president's own party uh and still can't get anything done or still well gets some things done but not really how dare uh, you most of the president's agenda but better So, I mean, this is it's going to affect his his ability to to implement his agenda. I think no question Uh, he'll have to figure out some ways to work with the legislature. However, um, the real upside here, it seems to me, is that uh, Chile is, uh, as people should know or or, uh, may or may not know, I guess, drawing up a new constitution. Uh, They're holding a constitutional convention that will rewrite a constitution that was drawn up in 1980 under the Pinochet dictatorship. Which cost? Who is sort of uh, he? He played it down during the the campaign, but has in the past openly talked about his great admiration for Pinochet and uh, suggested that uh, you know Pinochet would buy him lunch or something. I forget what the the exact quote was. If he was alive today, cost uh, had had sort of pledged to interrupt. Uh, that process and to undermine the work of the Constitutional Convention. He opposed it uh, pretty consistently. So at the very least, what this means is uh, that convention will be allowed to do its work. uh, And what emerges um, may require, you know, a a sort of uh, rebuilding the Congress, you know, a new election of some kind. Uh, So it, it remains to be seen how that process will play out, but certainly will have major implications for Boris's presidency. Do you think what to me a, a very interesting element of this which we um talked a little bit about last time is the regional implications. So what do you think are the larger regional implications or what could they be in terms of a um a, a sort of pink tie type situation because I was on Chapo last week and we were talking about you know potential balancing against the United States and this is in some sense the you know the huge question of Latin American history with regards to the United States at least um, when we're talking about international relations is how do you counter that do you think there's any potential for some sort of genuine balancing or is it just too early to say um I mean I think some of it some of it has started already in in countries that are um, really on the U.S. hit list. So Venezuela, for example, and now Nicaragua increasingly. Um, y- we, you have seen, um, you know, kind of an open outreach to China, basically. I mean, you know, uh, Ortega. And Could I Nicaragua just say my just- thing of China, though? I do not think, maybe I'm wrong, but my read of Chinese history and also what, what the, the party wants, it doesn't want that sort of like trans-hemispheric hegemony that the United uh, States uh, sought. Right. So they can get money. Yeah. So, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I'm skeptical of claims that China wants any sort of real presence in the Western hemisphere. It doesn't seem like they do to me. I don't think they want a presence in the same way that the U.S. wants a presence in East Asia, that the U.S. still wants to be the the dominant player in pretty much every part of the world. But what they offer for countries that wind up at the uh, at the pointy end of the U.S. sword, since that sword increasingly is economic rather than military, increasingly it's right. sanctions, uh, they offer a lifeline to 
those governments in a way that right. uh, didn't so, didn't exist uh, previously. So this I is think. my question. I think that's what I could see happening as a lifeline, like a Cuba situation, but a genuine right. balancing and something transformative still seems to me difficult to imagine. Yeah, maybe I mean, maybe I, that's too pessimistic, but th- well, that's my read of the situation. No, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think there are, uh, again, uh, to look at another recent example, Giomara Castro won the presidency mm-hmm. of Honduras uh, after campaigning and and suggesting, I mean, playing, playing around a little bit with it, but suggesting that she might... Um, follow Ortega, basically, I mean, he hadn't done it at the time, but suggesting that she might, for example, cut ties with Taiwan and open, you know, uh, embassies in Beijing and, you know, uh, uh, create regular relations with with mainland China. She's now backed off of that. Um, She's very talking about Taiwan and Taiwan is sort of a proxy. This is sort of a proxy for uh, are you going to try to get along with the United States or are you going to, you know, uh, lean toward China? So um, I would expect Boris to do the same thing Uh, if Lula wins in Brazil. Uh, next year, I expect you know it I expect these likely. guys will try to get along uh, with the United States. Now, some of this depends on what happens in the United States if Donald Trump is reelected or you know returned to office in 2024 uh, or somebody like him. Uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult for these guys, I would assume, to work with him. Um, but I mean, then again, you know, AMLO has worked pretty well with him in, in Mexico, or worked pretty well with Trump in, in Mexico. And um, yeah. Mexico you know, do, is, of, I think, unique in Latin America. Its relationship to the United States, I think, is unique. I, I, my my understanding of Mexican history is that it's not necessarily a model for other um, countries in the region. But so it'll be no, interesting to I, see. I mean, I think part of the reason that AMLO like Trump was because other than immigration, Trump didn't really, I mean, he negotiated the new NAFTA agreement, but he basically left Mexico alone and in, in, right. uh, to a degree that most U.S. presidents don't. So I think that that might have been part of the reason why they had a good working relationship. And it was interesting just to, to jump in on that when I, I co-edited a issue of the, uh, the NACLA journal, um, which is a journal focused on Latin America. And one of the major takeaways was that it, it was about like, what if Bernie would win? This is when Bernie was still running. What would a good pol- U.S. policy toward Latin America be? And one of the major themes, if I recall correctly, was just leave Latin America alone. You know, like I think that that, that is like a, a serious desire amongst many um, people from the region itself. So it'll be interesting if like Trump winds up being some uh, a leader that's remembered fondly because he just ignored it effectively, yeah. which is sort of the idea ironies of geopolitics and history um yeah it's it's uh you know one of these you you get these earnest uh liberal administrations that come into power and say well we want to we want to help we want to send money and the money winds up going to the police or the military or into somebody's pockets and it just makes things some security transition uh, yeah ignoring it might be better they might be better off so let's take the submarine from Chile over to, I don't know, U- U.S. Russia, because there's going to be perhaps some talks uh, next month. To uh, the Black and so Sea, Derek, maybe. To the Black Sea, to Adasha yeah. on the Black Sea. So why don't, Derek, you say what's been going on? And I want people to hear your take, because there's been a lot of saber rattling in the American press, um, particularly in the last two weeks. So what do you think is going on um, with Russia and Ukraine? And then maybe you could talk just a little bit about potential U.S.-Russia talks. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I have two takes on this, a short-term take and a long-term take. My short-term take is that uh, people are... Uh, I, I mean, I, I would say panicking, but that implies they're sort of doing it in good faith. People are doing a lot of saber rattling, as you say, uh, about Russia's military buildup, 
uh, in the vicinity of the Ukrainian border. I think that that is, um, to some extent, being inflated. Um, certainly, you know, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, are are doing this. I mean, they're they're stationing troops close enough to Ukraine to make people nervous on purpose. They're not just, uh, you know, kind of innocently twiddling their thumbs. But I don't think that there is an imminent invasion coming um the, the historical examples that people cite uh you know of putin you know moving into crimea or moving you know supporting the rebels in eastern ukraine uh, or you know a few years ago several years ago now i guess uh supporting uh separatists in georgia don't really apply to this situation it seems to me there was uh you know the russian activity in crimea and and eastern ukraine was entirely a reaction to uh the sudden toppling of a russian friendly government in kiev um georgia is a little more complicated russia did some things to kind of uh provoke that conflict in a way uh but even there you could make the argument that it was the georgians who uh, fired first in a sense. I, I, that's, that's debatable and I don't want to, uh, hash it out because it's not really clear. But, um, even there though, I think, you know, it was, it was more sudden. It was more, uh, there wasn't this kind of showy military buildup and like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I'm doing. He just did it. And I, I think it's like that a bar if, fight, if, right? Like the guy who's like, hit me, bro, hit me, bro. That's not yeah. the guy who's going to swing. For, like, that's what right. Putin's doing a little bit now. If you were going to fight, you just punch. You just punch. And and, and he, I think the fact that he's doing this, and, and this is the second time, it was the second time this year uh, that Russia has built up forces in this, this region and sent, you know, panic. Uh, waves through or whatever and you know send people into a tizzy in, in Ukraine and in the West um, but, I mean I think he's showing off he's he's trying to get somebody to engage with him uh, he's trying to create leverage or at least to force some kind of a uh, a dialogue so that's my short-term take I have a I have another take that it's a little uh, takes a little longer view if if you want that one. Oh, I want it <laughs> I want the full Davison experience, baby. This is Christmas. Give it to me. So, I mean, there's there's uh, some armchair psychoanalysis of Putin, and I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's um, uh, accurate or not, but it it, it could be. Uh, that suggests that he feels a, a very strong pull to keep Ukraine from falling into the Western orbit. And there's two reasons for that. One is obviously security. I mean, it, it would be uh, problematic for him to have NATO stationed in Ukraine and potentially have weapons stationed in Ukraine. Uh, this is an avowedly kind of hostile force at this point, and, and he would view that as a, a serious thing. The other part of it is ideological. Putin is a Russian nationalist. Ukraine is very important to the Russian national consciousness. And so uh, this psychoanalysis as as it goes uh says you know he he doesn't want to see uh kiev and, and the rest of ukraine slip out of the russian orbit uh for this reason i was going to say this is just the long-standing putin fear with regards eu expansion going back to nato expansion this is like right. a generational project that that putin and many russian uh, elites are concerned about and and i will say if if that's a concern of his, this like long view of Russian history, the sweep of Russian history and the importance that uh, Ukraine plays in, in Russian history, if that's his concern, he couldn't have 
played any of this any worse because there's nobody who's done more to drive Ukraine and Ukrainians and Ukrainian politics uh, out of the Russian orbit and toward the West than the Russians. I mean, you know, they uh, annexed Crimea and, and uh, you know, handled things badly from a, uh, I think, hearts and minds perspective. That's really what, what he wants to do. Uh, but that said, um, what I would say is, you know, if if this notion of keeping Ukraine in in the Russian family because it's uh, that's sort of the centuries uh, old way of things. Uh, back if to that's Kiev Rus. to him, right, all the way back to the Kievan Rus. If that's really important to him, uh, then you know, on a long enough time frame, you could. Uh, you know, you could get closer and closer to a conflict. So there's a lot of ifs there. There's a lot of like things that would need to happen. Putin would have to stay in power for for you know, he'd have to live long enough to yeah, he's uh, getting to older, get to this yeah. point. The, the government in uh, Kiev. I mean, part of this, you know, part of this strategy that they've had um, with sort of assist helping the the separatists in eastern Ukraine and um, you know annexing Crimea was to destabilize Ukraine and and the idea being that you could make people you could make Ukrainians angry at their own government and angry enough to get rid of it and vote in or put in a, a power uh, a more russian friendly government that hasn't worked i mean they got angry at petro poroshenko the former president but they voted in somebody who is just as pro west if not more so uh, volodymyr zelensky uh, so that that hasn't worked for him and and if you know if that was the strategy and it didn't work now he may uh, i mean he could go in a different direction but I think it's uh, you're talking on the order of years, not months or weeks, as as people seem to think uh, is is the time scale. What do you think the Western press and the foreign policy establishment are doing? So on one hand, I think we do have to take them at their word. Like they believe this. They believe Putin is someone who is, you know, bent on revanchism and would do something like invade Ukraine. There's a genuine fear there because a lot of these people were trained during the Cold War. They had experience, you know, dealing with uh, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know, Russian and Soviet leaders. And so there's a genuine fear there. But something tells me you think more is going on. So what is what do you think is actually happening in the Western press? Well, I think there's a lot of anxiety after Afghanistan and the withdrawal that the United States looks weak. And maybe we look weak enough that Russia is going to try to take Ukraine, or maybe we look weak enough that China is going to try to uh, do something in Taiwan. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of uh, a need to kind of puff out America's chest and uh, stand up to bullies, I guess, which is the the language that the the foreign policy press tends to use. Um, you know, I, I think that that may be uh, some of the reason for this hype. Some of it is just anti-Russia. It's it's muscle memory. I mean, this yeah, is Russophobia. This yeah. yeah, Russophobia. That's that's a better word for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a mix of of you know some very old tendencies in the the foreign policy press and uh, some new anxiety after uh, what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, now we should I should say the the news this week was that uh, the Biden administration is hinting that it will be holding talks with Putin's government in January uh, over security issues over NATO. Uh, this basically this list of demands that the Russians. Uh, put out uh, of things that they they want commitments they want from NATO, which 
I, I thought might have been might have gone a little too far and might have been a non-starter for the West, but it seems like uh, they're they're willing to at least engage on it to some degree. Uh, they're not going to agree to what uh, Putin wants, but they could have uh, even the talks. I think themselves, assuming they happen, and it's uh, you know seems likely that they will. That that will forestall. Uh, I think any any uh, if you're of the mindset that there's going to be an invasion any sometime soon, that will forestall it at least as long as they're they're talking. I think. So let's take a spaceship from our Black Sea Dasha to uh, I don't know the International Space Station and look at Omicron because Omicron <laughs> has been sweeping the globe. Um, so Derek, what's your what's what do we know about Omicron? What do we not know about Omicron? And particularly because this is a foreign policy pod, how is it related to vaccine colonialism, or how does it seem to be related to vaccine colonialism? Sure, I mean what we know, and bearing in mind that I have absolutely no training in anything related to this, uh, there are there were three new studies this week: one from South Africa, one from England, and one from Scotland that indicated or suggested that Omicron may be, in fact, milder than previous COVID variants, especially the dreaded Delta. Um, There's evidence that people who contract Omicron are significantly less likely to wind up in a hospital. Uh, What I, my, my sense is what what people don't know yet, what scientists don't know yet, is why. What is the mechanism? Is it something about the strain itself? Is it the fact that by this point, um, you know, most people have either been vaccinated or had it? Well, I don't. I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people have either had it once already or been vaccinated against it, and so they may have some natural immunity that uh, helps them deal with the with an infection. Um, it's not. That's not clear yet. Um, there is at least uh, one study that suggested if you do wind up in the hospital because of Omicron, you're not your outcome is not likely to be significantly different from if you'd wound up there with Delta. Uh, so that that could indicate that it's something other than uh, sort of a natural phenomenon in the vaccine. It could be you know one of these other explanations the yeah i mean the the question of vaccine nationalism and sort of uh, the hoarding uh, of vaccines on the part of uh, the industrialized world which is something that the world health organization and several uh, countries in the developing world in the global south have been decry- you know decrying for for months now well over a year probably uh, well close to a year anyway um is, uh, you know, the effect of, of that is you create these islands or these pockets where there's very little penetration of the vaccines. COVID is able to, uh, spread, uh, very thoroughly. And, and, and that's where you get these variants from. That's where you get the evolution of the virus into, into new and new variants that do different things. Omicron now seems to be substantially easier to spread. It's substantially more likely to reinfect people who have already had the, another strain of COVID. Uh, it's less, uh, susceptible to the vaccines. The vaccines still seem to prevent, uh, serious illness or mitigate against severe, severe illness. But in terms of, you know, getting, contracting the, the virus, they don't seem to uh, be as effective against Omicron. So, I mean, the lesson is, as it should have been, that, you know, you gotta, you gotta get everybody vaccinated. I mean, you gotta get these vaccines everywhere. You have to make sure, you have to make sure that, uh, Africa, uh, Latin America, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, all these places, you know, that are, um, that have been struggling to get 
doses of the vaccine and the ones that they get are, you know, a week away from uh, expiration and, and unusable, basically. Uh, you have to stop doing that. You have to make sure that these places, you know, uh, do things to, you know, uh, lift patent protections, um, you know, donate more more vaccine supplies to the developing world, whatever it takes. You got to get this stuff out to people. Good. And we'll, we'll keep giving you updates on all of that. And so why don't we uh, wind up on um, the latest New York Times story on civilian casualties um, discussing uh, Iraq, uh, Syria and Afghanistan and, and what that said and why it's important. Yeah, this is another we we talked we've talked about uh, they've been doing these investigative pieces about the air war, especially in Syria, um, and the lack of intelligence and the the uh, efforts to cover up strikes that turn out to have been uh, targeting civilians instead of uh, combatants. Um, there's a two part. A uh, big two-part thing that the the Times published uh, over the weekend um, called the Civilian Casualty Files, uh, and again, I, I would like people to to click over and read it uh, because we can't. I don't think we can do it justice here. But uh, you know, they went through uh, I think thirteen hundred reports of airstrikes or drone strikes that report, you know, where there were reports of civilian casualties uh, and, you know, the the military ran its own assessments uh, of these things. And it shows, you know, over and over again that uh, they were making strikes without good intelligence. They were racing to uh, strike groups of people that they didn't really, they weren't really sure whether they were civilian or not. Uh, they were, you know, they killed potentially thousands of civilians uh, and and yet sanitized all of this or just outright covered it up so that they could present uh, to the American public this image of an air war that is being conducted with uh, unprecedented precision and you know the issuing these uh, bogus civilian you know, like yeah. bogus civilian casualty claims that were uh, just absurdly like offensively low um, and, and I think that I just want to pause yeah. for a second because I think this is really important because it just shows the impossibility of doing the sort of regulated precision war that was the promise of the Obama administration which to me is just sort of a larger metaphor for the entire imperial project that you can't have good imperialism effectively that was the promise of the obama administration's foreign policy and particularly the, the turn to so-called precision war um and so i think this is a really important issue because of its macro um implications effectively yeah i i, I agree i mean it's um it should put the lie to a lot of that talk from the, uh, you know, I guess more the liberal interventionist or the liberal internationalist side of the, uh, the equation. But this is, uh, yeah, I, again, I, I mean, I think people should read it because I can't convey, uh, it's, it's altogether, it's at the same time, kind of, if you've been following this war and you were skeptical of all this stuff, you sort of assumed that things were bad and yet it's still shocking to, to kind of read, the extent to which the U.S. military, not only the extent to which the, the war has been um, deadly and, and, you know, conducted poorly and, and, you know, killed a lot of people, but the extent to which the Pentagon knows that this has happened and still, uh, you know, has covered it up and, and insisted that it's uh, doing everything right. It doesn't even pay out condolence payments. That was one of the things they found in the this investigation. Uh, you know, they only rarely pay out even condolence payments to to families of victims. Um, it's it's just you know sort of disturbing and yet unsurprising on some level. 
Well, everyone, on that happy note, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, Should have planned uh, that better. Sorry. No, no worries. So everyone, thank you so much. Um, and, and we here at American Prestige, as we come to the close of uh, the first, not year, but the first six months, uh, we really appreciate everyone listening. Uh, we hope you enjoy our interview this week and our, our special bonus interview uh, that will be released tomorrow on Christmas Day itself. And again, um, if you can, please consider liking, subscribing, um, reviewing. Uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you all and have a Merry Christmas. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm here, as always, with Danny Bessner, uh, my co-host. We're being joined once again by Sina Tusi of the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Regular listeners, and you should all be listening to these podcast episodes at least once. I would recommend three or four times, frankly. Uh, Yes. I, I think, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's the American prestige way. <laughs> anyway, regular listeners will recall that we had Sina on a couple of weeks ago to talk about the history of Iran's nuclear energy program. Uh, we made it up to just on the cusp of the negotiations uh, for what became the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was uh, negotiated in 2015. Uh, So we were just at the end of Barack Obama's first presidential term with the election of Hassan Rouhani, realized that we had way too much to cover and still have a uh, reasonable-sized episode, so we decided we would have Cena back. Well, here he is. Uh, He's back with us, and we're very pleased uh, to have him. Hello, Cena. Thank you for doing the show again on such a quick turnaround. Hey, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a very relevant topic, and so happy to talk more about this. So why don't we, um, for people who, uh, again, I don't condone this, but people who may not have listened to the previous episode that you were on, uh, why don't we start with sort of the basic uh, situation in terms of uh, you know, as we're in 2012, 2013, what does Iran's nuclear program look like? What kinds of interactions are the Iranians having with European and uh, at this point, even kind of back channel uh, U.S. Uh, officials to talk about their nuclear program? And what are the main concerns? Because there are certain kind of specific details about the Iranian nuclear program uh, that are really triggering uh, a reaction in in the West. So uh, why don't you start us there with a sort of overview of the situation? Yeah, so the time window of 2011 to 2012, that Iranian nuclear crisis, the original nuclear crisis, was was at its peak. You know, tensions were super high back then. Um, The Obama administration had built this sanctions regime against Iran, you know, that included more kind of unilateral primary U.S. sanctions that Congress approved, as well as U.N. Security Council resolutions, uh, getting China and Russia even on board with with those resolutions. And by 2011-2012, all of this pressure and all of these sanctions, they had not led to any kind of diplomatic breakthrough. The negotiations were at a deadlock. You know, in Iran, there's a president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, conservative, very bellicose, 
very, you know, his rhetoric was very anti-American, anti-Israel. Um, and in the U.S., you know, the Obama administration during the first term, uh, rhetorically, they really, you know, pushed for a deal and said that they wanted a deal. But at the same time, the Obama administration, one thing that, re you know, on the U.S. part also held back the deal back then was an insistence that Iran give up its nuclear program entirely and especially um, enrichment, uh, uranium enrichment in Iran, which for Iran, their view was that, you know, enrichment is a right given to them by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT that they're signed onto. So this was always a huge kind of uh, impasse. But in 2011, this was a time when both sides were escalating. Iran was expanding their nuclear program. The U.S. had, you know, has had hit them with sanctions, hit them with, you know, there was covert actions, assassinations of Iranian scientists that we know, you know, later it became clear that Israel carried those out. The U.S. hit Iran with Stuxnet, Stuxnet, the first cyber weapon, took out a lot of Iranian centrifuges in, in one of their enrichment facilities. But in 2011, much like we see now, a lot of talk about war, a lot of talk of Israel potentially launching strikes, Obama being worried. And then we did get a breakthrough heading in, beginning in 2012 and 2013, which I can get into if you'd like. Yeah, yeah let's, let's, I mean, let's, let's get that. into it. Let's have yeah, fun. Absolutely. You know, Cena, it's the Christmas season. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the break, I mean, the breakthrough, there's, I know like the, the, the narrative that everybody in D.C. Uh, likes to tell themselves, or at least the Obama folks uh, to a great extent, uh, is that the breakthrough happens because this maximum pressure sanctions campaign is so tough that the Iranians buckle buckle under and they, you know, sort of uh, bend the knee and, and you know, uh, cry uncle. Uh, but that's that's not really it, right? Yeah, the sanctions, see, that's the thing. With the nuclear, what led to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal in 2015, is that each side had accrued its own bargaining chips, its own leverage. For the U.S., it was its, its sanctions regime, which was, you know, and which, you know, we can't understate how harmful that was to the Iranian economy. And, you know, back then in 2010, 11, 12, really devastating impacts, you know, causing inflation, shortage of a lot of goods, a lot of hardship on ordinary people. So there's no doubt about that, that those sanctions were hurting and that Iran needed those sanctions lifted. But at the same time, Iran also had its own bargaining chips, namely its, its, nuclear program, the expansion of its nuclear program, its accrual of, of stockpiled uranium, enriching at higher levels. And for the U.S., you know, that was Iran's pressure tool, that Iran is getting closer to the ability to build a nuclear bomb, that if it decided to build a nuclear bomb, the time it would need was getting shorter and shorter. So what the nuclear deal reflected eventually and what the breakthrough represented was each side agreeing to bottom line demands as opposed to these maximalist demands like Iran has to give up its nuclear program entirely or give up enrichment entirely. The Obama administration agreed to a compromise, which was that in exchange for the lifting of a lot of the nuclear sanctions and the UN Security Council resolutions, Iran would give up and agree to intrusive kind of monitoring mechanisms that would ensure no nuclear bomb, but at the same time, allow Iran to have a peaceful nuclear program and to enrich uranium and, 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 you know, maintain this kind of nuclear fuel cycle infrastructure. And so that's what the, the critical breakthrough was. And that actually began under the tenure of this, this president's Ahmadinejad. You know, it wasn't actually with Rouhani coming that a lot of these, you know, Rouhani enabled and, and, you know, created a smooth path. You know, there was a 
counterpart in Tehran that was also pro-diplomacy. But actually, there was bilateral negotiations between the U.S. and Iran, a secret back channel at first, through Oman in 2012 and 2013. And, and the 2013 one, in, in specifically, you know, several months before the election that brought Rouhani to power, that the U.S. sent a delegation to Oman, which is actually helmed by Bill Burns at the time. Uh, I think he was undersecretary of state, but, you know, currently he's the CIA director. But at this critical Oman meeting in 2013, Bill Burns, for the first time, officially conveyed to the Iranians that that the U.S. is willing to accept a limited enrichment program on Iranian soil in exchange for a deal. And that was really in the Iranian calculus, you know, shifted things. And but ultimately, you know, we can't also say sanctions played no role. I think the U.S. cashed in its bargaining chips and Iran cashed in its bargaining chips. But the key was each side having dropping maximalist demands and, and really searching for kind of a, a more equitable compromise. Right. It's not it's not that the sanctions played no role or that they didn't have a tremendously harmful impact on the Iranian economy. It's this idea that the negotiations were like an, a capitulation by the Iranians. When, in fact, as you say, it, it was this uh, agreement or concession from the U.S. to allow them uh, an enriched uh, uranium capacity or t an uranium enrichment capacity uh, that was, uh, you know, part of the breakthrough. It was, it was the U.S. giving up something, too. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, with the JCPOA, you know, the, the broader strategic implications, the potential strategic implications that it you know, could have had for the U.S.-Iran relationship because what the, new, the the negotiations that led to the Iran nuclear deal that began in 2013 when this this moderate Iranian president Hassan Rouhani came to power, and when Rouhani came to power, you know, he ran on a platform emphasizing the need for diplomacy, improving ties with the outside world. You know, he had this famous line where he said, "You know, it's not enough that our centrifuges are spinning. You know, people's livelihoods need to be spinning as well." You know, it sounded nice and farcy the way he said it, but that was in a famous <laughs> debate. <laughs> but you know, in the midst of you know a lot of you know, Iran has its very its own entrenched you know anti very anti American kind of conservatives and hardliners, people who you know, much like our conservatives and hardliners here, I would argue, people who thrive on confrontation with the West, who thrive on confrontation with the U.S., who never who never wanted to see the nuclear deal, who didn't want to see negotiations with the West. But regardless, Rouhani, you know, Iran's middle class came out, overwhelmingly voted for him, you know, huge rallies, a lot of political capital. And he spent all that political capital on negotiating the nuclear deal for, in, for two years, 2013-2015, with Obama and it was a huge shift in the U.S.-Iran relationship. Like we have to keep things, you know, in this historical perspective with these two countries that since 1979 had no diplomatic relationships, had barely any level of diplomatic contact, very constant, you know, a constant exchange of threats, hostile rhetoric, kind of propaganda against each other. And what, what happened in those two years of the negotiations with Iran under Obama was for the first time the Iranian foreign minister and the U.S. Secretary of State met regularly. They would go on long walks to each other they developed a pretty friendly repertoire by all accounts it really and there was high level bilateral contact with the u.s and iran and this created a potential where the jcpoa the nuclear deal could have become this diplomatic model for conflict resolution not just with iran but in the middle east and in this very crisis kind of 
its area of the world and kind of, you know, where these different parties, the U.S. and some of its longtime adversaries can sit down and compromise. And, you know, there, there's this air of mutual respect as opposed to threats and, and kind of aggressive rhetoric. And so that was really the promise of the JCPOA. And it had a whole lot of expectations in Iran, which we can also get into. But of course, this was all undone by Trump. And we're seeing a lot of the ramifications of that today. Before we get into Trump, I've got a question. We haven't spent much time talking about Israel, um, and I think Israel is, of course, a crucial actor in the American geostrategic position here. Um, so could you maybe just go through in brief, what does Israel claim it fears from Iran? Are these legitimate claims or not? Uh, and how did the um, Obama-Israel relationship shape in uh, or inform, if it did at all, the JCPOA? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we have to keep in mind that, you know, the America's core national security interest with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, was making sure that Iran can't build nuclear weapons. A very legitimate, important national security concern. So, you know, the, and so that was met with the deal. This was also in the interest of America's traditional allies in Europe, you know, with China, with Russia, with the UN Security Council. So this was a major, you know, achievement for nuclear nonproliferation, these unprecedented kind of measures that Iran agreed to, to agree to. But Israel was one of the very few countries, um, basically it was just Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and a few of the Persian Gulf monarchies that opposed the, nu the nuclear negotiations at the time with the Obama administration and brought enormous pressure on the Obama administration uh, it, it, with the goal being to sabotage the negotiations, to scuttle them, to prevent this from happening. You know, it went so far as in the midst of the negotiations, while President, the U.S., sitting American president is negotiating and, and kind of executing foreign policy that Netanyahu, the Israeli foreign minister, came to Congress, uh, violated traditional diplomatic protocol in the kind of spring of 2015, a short few months before the deal was agreed, did not properly notify the White House, went through the Republican Speaker of uh, the House and gave a speech to both houses of Congress, you know, attacking Obama over his negotiations. You know, it's a huge kind of affront to, to the, the, the U.S. president, the, the executive branch's ability to make foreign policy. It was a huge con controversy at the time. Of course, Republicans were all in with this effort. And, you know, that, I think, that whole effort was very seminal and influential in the U.S. kind of Israel relationship because it did make Israel ultimately more partisan, the Israel issue in America more partisan. I think, you know, a split with some Democrats, and especially with Obama and a lot of those folks. But regardless, so what, like, what is the root of Israel's opposition to the nuclear deal? Is it that this deal did not put pro you know, proper limits on the Iran's nuclear program? You know, that, that angle of it, you know, the overwhelming consensus amongst non-proliferation experts, arms control experts, nuclear experts, that this was an, a, a really a great, the best deal we can get on non-proliferation. Again, historically unprecedented. No country has ever agreed voluntarily to this level of restrictions on their nuclear program. Um, and these, you know, there's this issue of sunsets, but the sunsets were A, lasting for a long time and all the key measures. B, you know, all arms control agreements are extended. You know, B, you know, if you build trust and confidence and it's working for everybody, that's, you know, you can try to extend those sunsets. So that was disingenuous. You know, I would strongly argue that their claims on the non-proliferation merits of the JCP was disingenuous, which leads us to what, what were the what were Israel's real issues? What is Netanyahu's real issues? And I think there's many factors at play here. But one of the most important factors, which I think we got into in the previous episode a little bit, was Israel and some of these Arab Persian Gulf monarchies in this post-Cold era trying to remain strategically relevant for the U.S. and trying to keep the U.S. in the region 
uh, bogged down and with, you know, giving them unconditional support, giving them a blank check. I think that is the position they really wanted to maintain as long as possible. Because if Iran is the boogeyman, if, if they portray Iran like Iran and America have to be perennially at odds. Iran is this, you know, this new Nazi Germany and it wants to wipe out Israel and we can't, you know, come have any diplomacy with Iran, which is basically, you know, that was Netanyahu's position, that this would keep the U.S. in the region giving unconditional support to Israel, Saudi Arabia. And what it would really allow them to do is have this kind of outsized kind of regional position that they've, they've allowed them, to, they gain, you know, where Netanyahu can continue his policies to kind of expand settlements, distract from the Palestinian issue. You know, the longer time American policymakers and various international countries in the UN is focused on the Iran nuclear program, it's less time that they're focused on the Palestinian issue, you know, Israel's, you know, annexation of the West Bank and this very destabilizing kind of agenda that, that you know, is the right wing in Israel and these governments there have, have moved in that direction of. So, you know, I think, you know, the threat of you, an improvement in U.S.-Iran relations that people like Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and the various other kind of these leaders in that region, they felt that that could come with the nuclear deal that that and if the if us iran relationship improved america could withdraw would might with, would withdraw from the region considerably america's posture towards the middle east would change and this would ultimately come at their expense because they're countries that have been so heavily dependent on us support and this kind of outsized regional posture they have would would kind of they would have to rein that back in so i think that was really at the roots of netanyahu's opposition among, but there are other factors as well. Why don't we get into the talks themselves? And uh, maybe you could describe the key issues that, that the negotiators were looking at when they began uh, the discussions with the, the Rouhani team. Um, my recollection is that basically it was... Uh, there were two tracks. There was the sort of technical track where, you know, there were concerns about the enrichment program. There were concerns about um, the the heavy water reactor that Iran was building. Um, and then there was the inspections track. So it was about, you know, getting Iran to accept uh, the additional protocol with the, the IAEA and, and um, you know, the, the expanded kind of verification system. So why don't you give give us an overview of those issues? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the nuclear deal really addressed every potential proliferation risk of Iran's nuclear program. So, you know, there's two routes to a nuclear bomb through plutonium or uranium. So Iran's uranium enrichment facilities were put under, you know, unprecedented uh, inspections regimes and monitoring by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Iran had to kind of lower the level of enrichment it did from 20% before the nuclear deal to under 5%. The kind of stockpiles of enriched uranium it was allowed to keep were far, far less. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, this plutonium path to a potential bomb, Iran had this heavy water reactor that it was building that, you know, part of its spent fuel could have potentially become fuel. Although Iran never had the infrastructure, the other infrastructure it needed for that. And again, nuclear energy, it's a dual purpose, you know, technology. So there's Iran had peaceful uses for these facilities, but as part of the nuclear deal, they also agreed to modify that facility to prevent any kind of this plutonium pathway to a bomb. And also in terms of undeclared sites, you know, sites that potentially there might be nuclear activity, Iran agreed to enhance mechan 
inspections regimes, this thing called the additional protocol with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that basically gave the IAEA far better kind of access to where it wanted, you know, various kind of suspect sites it wanted to go to. So it really addressed every potential proliferation risk of the Iranian nuclear program. On the other hand, what the Iranians were seeking was tangible sanctions relief. That they, you know, what these sanctions had had done is prevent Iran's, you know, a lot of international trade for Iran, Iran's access to the international banking system and these various financial transaction systems that you need access to to really trade goods internationally. Um, Iranian oil exports exports were slashed because of the sanctions back then. And Iran... And Iran ultimately for decades had been in a, in a state of isolation where, you know, whereas before the revolution, Iran had a lot of trade and ties with the, with Europe and America, obviously that had for decades been, you know, basically largely eliminated, although not with Europe, but also that had really decreased. So Iran hoped to increase its trade with the West, kept tangible sanctions relief. And that never really materialized how they expected it for them and especially how Rouhani sold it to the Iranian public public because Rouhani really, you know, during these, you know, as part of this kind of all this hardliner pressure he had there and him making the case for the deal, he really sold up like how many of the benefits Iran was going to get. And ultimately a lot of that trade never really materialized, even with the West. And even their priority was giving, even after the nuclear deal, their priority was giving contracts to Western firms over Chinese firms. Like it really was for, for that Rouhani camp and part of their political vision is to kind of improve, you know, ties with the West and have for Iran to have more balanced kind of political foreign relations. And but a lot of these Western companies, even the few that were coming in, you know, once Trump got elected, I mean, this is a key part of the timeline. The J the nuclear deal was implemented in January 2016. It was it was agreed in July 2015, implemented in 2016. That's when America on paper took off the sanctions. Trump won in November 2016 after that entire year, you know, calling it the worst deal ever, he's going to leave. And, and then, you know, so what this did is even though he didn't actually leave the nuclear deal until 2018, the message sent to all these various European companies, foreign companies trying to go in is that they're going to be more risk averse, that these sanctions are probably going to come back. There's a break, so they're not going to go in. So that deal, that never really materialized for Iran the way they expected it, the sanctions really. Yeah, there's sort of, I mean, there's sort of a couple of things that went on, I think, um, you know, one, I remember at the time, you know, a lot of um, uh, analysts talked about uh, the nature of doing business in Iran, the difficulties for companies that hadn't experienced kind of, you know, the Iranian system or the Iranian government or any of the, you know, trying to kind of establish themselves in Iran would struggle with that. Um, but the, the much bigger deal uh, was that companies just didn't trust that, that these sanctions were going to remain kind of, you know, uh, lifted, that they weren't going to be reimposed at some point or imposed under different, which is something Trump did actually imposed under different justifications, but, you know, basically the same sanctions. Um, do you, where do you kind of uh, put the blame for that? window of time do you feel like the obama administration could have done more to try and encourage uh, economic activity in iran do you feel like rohani over promised whether you know intentionally or he just didn't really um, understand how difficult it was going to be to get 
to to get economic activity that wasn't just as simple as lift the sanctions and everybody will just start pouring you know lining up at the door basically um what what's your take on on why it didn't work out uh, you know leaving aside trump for a second i think yeah so i mean first i would say i don't want to downplay the level the significance of the level of sanctions relief that iran did get for those couple of years that the jcpa was in effect like iran right, also, no i mean their yeah, economy yeah. So that's, that's right their that's, economy that's really, really important so that's why I, it makes sense. I, I would argue it still make you go to go back in the deal today. Like the JCPOA still brought Iran huge benefits, you know, just being able to export its oil normally, getting access to its frozen uh, money abroad and kind of engaging in a lot more international trade. Like Iran's GDP, you know, rose sharply in 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, before Trump's maximum pressure campaign. But about this, yeah, about, you know, those expectations I mean, I mean, you know, Iran not getting the amounts of trade that it really expected and, you know, getting a lot, you know, because the JCPOA, Iran was supposed to be able to import civilian aircraft for the first time in decades. You know, it's one of the actual very kind of uh, very brutal U.S. sanctions on Iran is that, you know, on Iran's airline industry, they haven't been able to get a lot of the parts or, you know, aircraft that they've needed. So, you know, Iran has had huge, a lot of plane accidents over the past several decades. But the JCPOA allowed for Iran to get you know, buy planes from Boeing, Airbus, but these never materialized because even under the Obama administration, giving the, you know, the Treasury Department, giving them a license was delayed a lot. You know, that wasn't as speedy as it was supposed to, it could have been. And then eventually Trump, you know, all the, you know, when Trump came in, that started. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't part of the agreement and, and, you know, it was kind of, I, I think, vaguely phrased, but part of the agreement was not just that the U.S. would lift sanctions or that the, you know, would go to the U.N. and uh, get the get the U.N. Security Council to lift sanctions, but also that, like, the Obama administration had agreed to take steps to help Iran kind of make full use of, of sanctions relief, right, to, to sort yeah. of ensure that they got the maximum economic benefit. Yes, this is a great point. Um, the U.S. was obligated to do that under the deal. Now, you know, John Kerry and them, they did actually in that 2016, before they left office, they did make pretty significant efforts to, to you know, try to encourage some of these firms to, to go into Iran. But ultimately, um, there was not much, you know, John Kerry going to a private, you know, European company or European country to, to that that can get those companies to move. You know, a lot more could have been done by, by OFAC, by the Treasury Department by sending the right signals about future U.S. intentions. That stuff wasn't done. But, you know, at the same time, I do also want to say on the Iranian side, there was a lot of other factors that also have held back investment in Iran that don't have to do with sanctions, including, you know, that, you know, for example, Iran's financial, domestic financial laws and regulations, they're not in line with the global standards. And there's actually been legislation that Rouhani really tried to push through to put them in line with global standards so they don't fall on the blacklist of this international financial body that's based in Paris. Sina, and, could you just explain why what's what's not in line? I I, I yeah, just don't yeah. know what that means. So this is a yeah yeah this is actually an important point, but yeah. Um. So so Iran. So there's this financial regulation body based in Paris called the Financial Action Task Force (FATF). Now this has been a huge issue in Iran for many years. Because FATF regulates things like money laundering, um, banks kind of relationship with each other, terrorism fi- financing, all these kind of international standards that give investors the confidence to go into certain markets. Now, FA, 
Iran has been on the blacklist of FATF for years. And it, it was only Iran and North Korea. And obviously, you know, many people in Iran constantly say this, that Iran needed, you know, and Rouhani introduced legislation to reform Iran's banking system to come in line with those standards. But, you know, the conservative hardline elements in Iran, many of these elements who also didn't really want a lot of foreign and especially Western trade to come and, and you know, change the system and, and kind of, you know, benefit the more moderate reformist elements of the system at the expense of these kind of more conservative uh, elements of the system. So that's a huge part of this story, too. It's not one sided, you know, that on the Iranian side, you know, you had a lot of opposition to the deal and the potential outcomes of the deal by the conservative hardline factions that felt like they had a lot to lose. And actually, you know, the Supreme Leader Khamenei also played into this a lot. You know, Khamenei was, he kind of, you know, before the deal, he gave Rouhani the leash to go negotiate it, but he publicly always said that, you know, he doesn't trust the US, the US is not going to follow up by the end of the bargain. And so he kind of kept his kind of, you know, the more conservative base there with him. And then, of course, Khamenei was proven right. But then after the, even the deal was struck, even while Obama was still in office, Khamenei gave a speech talking about, you know, infiltrators coming from the U.S. to try to infiltrate the Islamic Republic and topple it from within. And he gave this big, you know, major speech back then in, in fall of 2015. And that resulted in the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, doing this crackdown on a lot of dual nationals, people who were, you know, trying to ink deals and kind of, so, you know, they all, that this is also an element that some of those elements, you know, of that system, at least juxtaposed with Rouhani and those moderates who were in power, then they didn't want necessarily this deal to be as successful as it could have been for their own kind of partisan interests within Iran. But now, of course, that's changed because the conservative hardliners have total power in Iran. So that's, that's a different situation today. Let's uh, get into Trump then, I guess. <laughs> We're at that point now. Um, I mean, Donald Trump campaigned um, on, in part, you know, railing against the JCPOA. He called it the worst deal ever struck. He was uh, very critical of it. Um, and so when he got elected, and this was sort of you know, eye-opening to a lot of people, I think, who didn't expect that to happen. Uh, but when he got elected, uh, and then, you know, when he started assembling um, his foreign policy team, I mean, I remember sort of the the speculative lists that would come out, and they were just chock full of, you know, people in the uh, Iran regime change community, very prominent in the Iran regime change uh, community. and And so... Um, it looked very much like Trump was going to try and get out of the, the nuclear deal as soon as possible, but he didn't. Uh, it took him a couple of years. Um, can you talk about the, the pressures uh, of that first period of, of the Trump administration and, um, you know, what, what was keeping him uh, from sort of pulling the trigger on, on uh, what he clearly, you know, had wanted to do? Yeah. I think, you know, as you said, like Trump came to office wanting to tear up this field. It was his campaign promise, you know, they called it the worst deal in history. Um, one of his, you know, his biggest campaign donor, actually, Sheldon Adelson, um, you know, self-avowed kind of pro-Israel donor, you know, Israel is his single issue. And, you know, Sheldon Adelson was all in with Netanyahu. So you had this kind of, you know, this connection 
from Trump's campaign to the kind of Israeli right wing, all these kind of anti-JCPOA forces. And Trump really came in wanting to kill kill the deal. But I think, you know, what he and before he managed to do that in 2018, the kind of wall he hit was the kind of the more traditional kind of foreign policy establishment, even even amongst the Republicans, people like H.R. McMaster, his second national security advisor, James Mattis, his, his secretary of defense, people who did not like the JCPOA, but they saw that if the U.S., left the deal that this would be worse for us interests which you know later of course you know they were right that you know this would greatly damage american credibility that you know in their eyes even though they didn't like obama's deal either people like mattis and mcmaster that that for trump to leave now there's no there's no better alternative all these things that later materialize but i think so yeah i think so from you know 2016 to may 2018 when trump did leave the deal he he wanted to leave the deal i view it more as you know there was these these people who try to like, you know, the so-called adults in the room who try to kind of stop Trump's worst machinations, but were never really successful. And then Trump ev eventually got rid of all those people. And then he actually, you know, six months before he did formally leave the JCPOA, he decertified the deal, um, which was this, you know, this technicality with Congress. But again, he, he signaled that he was going to leave the deal. In the meantime, you know, Europe, everyone else was up in arms. They were trying to negotiate with Iran to try to, you know, even before Trump left the deal, they were trying to negotiate with, with Trump and try to find some potential new diplomatic thing they can have consensus on as, a, like, as opposed to leaving the deal, trying to pursue, you know, negotiations with Iran on this missile program or in the region. But Trump wasn't having any of that. He wanted to leave this deal. And in May of 2018, he did. And then he also, you know, he appointed you know, John Bolton as his national security advisor, that happened right around that time as well, right? I think that was around that spring of 2018 when Bolton came in. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And Bolton, you know, avowed, you know, avowed anti-Iran hawk, you know, warmongering uh, interventionist who has always, you know, his position is, was always very clear that we should bomb Iran, you know, consistently, you know, unashamedly, you know, publicly, he would say this. So anyways, he made him his, his national security advisor, Pompeo went from CIA director to replacing Rex Tillerson, who was more pragmatic as Secretary of State. Pompeo, again, and avowed anti-Iran hawk, just opposed to diplomacy with Iran in principle, this regime change ideologue, made him Secretary of State. So he had this constellation of advisors around him now that were totally about regime change in Iran. And that's, you know, and with this team, you know, they they embarked on maximum pressure, which turned out to be a disaster, obviously. One of the things that, that a lot of these people who wind up in prominent roles in, in the Trump administration by, let's say, 2018, um, Pompeo moves from CIA director to an even more prominent role as Secretary of State. Uh, but Mike Pence, uh, Pompeo, John Bolton, um, Rudy Giuliani, who's never in the administration, but clearly some bizarre role with Trump, some personal connection. Uh, one of the things these these guys have in common, in addition to uh, you know being friendly with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the, the Israeli right wing, uh, is an organization called Mujahideen Echalk. Uh, can you? I don't want to spend a lot of time on MEK, but can you give people the quick summary of 
what that organization is and why it's relevant to U.S. policymaking about Iran, not just on the nuclear issue, but but in general. Yeah, it's such a bizarre and insane connection that these people have. And I think you know, <laughs> if more Americans knew, they would be shocked. I mean, Mujahideen Khalq is a Iranian opposition group in its origins. You know, it was a group that, you know, first came into being under the Shah. There was a kind of an extremist group even back then. It was a, it was a blend of Marxism and kind of um, Islamicism and its ideology. But then over the years, they morphed into this very fringe cult that right now has no support amongst Iranians. Um, you know, after the, the Iranian revolution, they sided with Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq war, which cost them, you know, the support amongst, you know, the vast majority of Iranians. And they were based in Iraq. They, they served as Saddam Hussein's henchmen. Um, after the U.S. overthrew, you know, they even helped persecute the Kurds, for example, a lot of human rights abuses under them. They're, they're also a cult of personality, which they have these bigger heads that they have to give them total devotion. They have to separate from their wives. There's been like a, a pretty good amount of investigative journalism done, done about the MEK by the Intercept and many other outlets. But this group, you know, even though it is devoid of support amongst Iranians, even in the Iranian diaspora, they're widely loathed by Iranians. It, it's fringe. It's in, in a history of engaging in a lot of terrorist attacks inside Iran, you know, not discriminatory, killing civilians, you know, explosions, all these kinds of things that they've gained an immense amount of influence in Washington with a lot of key policymakers um, and even in Congress. And this really comes from they have a, a lot of money. They have a lot of money. It's unclear where they, they've gotten all their money from. There's been certain uh, some reports that have indicated they've gotten a lot of money from the Saudis. You know, the former Saudi intelligence minister spoke at one of their conferences a couple of years ago. Um, but they are also a useful tool for the kind of hardline neocons in Washington or the kind of the Israelis to use against Iran. So they're just, you know, they give them the facade of being this Iranian opposition group that claims to want a democratic free Iran, even though anyone who just goes one layer deeper into the MEK sees that it's, you know, bereft of any support. It's this scary cult with very few supporters. Um, but I think, you know, this, you know, Mike Pence or John Bolton would go to the MEK kind of rallies and be like, you know, in 2019, I mean, John Bolton during, you know, the, during the Trump era, he's, he went to one of the MEK rallies and he said in 2019, we hear, you know, like him and the MEK, we're going to be like celebrating in Tehran. <laughs> so this is, you know, this, I think, you know, they support, they provide and kind of Ahmad Chalabi like cover. That was these, the example yeah. I was going yeah, yeah. For yes. these neoconservatives. The yeah. Exactly. For They're Iran. these people, yeah, who they are the kind of regime change charlatans, I would put them, that they, they're, they're trying to mislead U.S. policymakers. U.S. policymakers are, are using them, and it just has created, obviously, this horrendous policy. And a lot of people are left, you know, not just this, this horrible, you know, humanitarian catastrophe of a policy is advanced, but also the MEK abuses so many of its own members. You know, right now they're in Albania. They're in a camp in Albania. And there's lots of reports of all the ongoing abuse. They torture their own members. They don't let them leave. So it's, you know, the U.S. has helped prop up this very, you know, this this group that was, until 2012, it was on the State Department's list of terrorist organizations. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I mean, the U.S. listed MEK as a foreign terrorist organization in 1997. Uh, it came off in 2012 after this just 
amazing lobbying effort. I mean, they had Tom Ridge, they had Wesley Clark, they had uh, Michael Mukasey, who was one of uh, George W. Bush's chiefs of staff. Uh, They had Giuliani, they had uh, Howard Dean, they had Bolton. Just this, like, list of big shot DC types who were all lobbying for them to be removed from, it. and it was it was just shocking. It's uh, just these people have the no principles. It. It's just literally, I mean, it's it's just laughable. There is, it is just money. Like yeah. Giuliani, the people that he has lobbied for, it's really mind boggling. So sorry, that it's really here nor there. No, it's crazy to, to see some people you would that. think know better, like you know, like, I don't know, like Howard Dean is a huge shield for the MEK. Bill Richardson was, I mean, people who you would think would know better, but would have done their research, but you know, they took so much money from them. Like you said, it's all about the money. They got bribed. And we know there's been a lot of great investigative journalism done about how these people would get checks to like tens of thousands of dollars just to go give like a five minute speech shilling to the MEK. Uh, just uh, anyone listening, Derek and I would be happy to do that. We will uh, carp on behalf of literally <laughs> anyone. Price. Yes, yes, and it's, it's <laughs> surprisingly low. So, uh, any, you, any it, we're going to get much better, much more bang for your buck than Giuliani, frankly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and, and MEK is operated under you know a, a number of other names. There's the National Council for Resistance of Iran. There's uh, the the United Against a Nuclear Iran group. I think is mostly. MEK, I may be wrong about that one, um, but you yeah. know there there's there've been they kind of put up these other organizations to I think obfuscate a little bit uh, who's really uh, involved in 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 their program. Yeah, they have a very sophisticated operation. You know, uh, a lot of front groups, like you said. It's actually interesting because after they they were delisted by the State Department, I mean the people the they did that knowing who the MEK was. Actually, Daniel Benjamin, I believe was his name, uh, former State Department kind of official. He was my of- boss at, oh, at really? a fellowship at Dartmouth. Yeah, Daniel oh, okay. Benjamin. Well, he great. was the head well, of the Dickey Center at Dartmouth. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. But well, he wrote this piece in Politico, actually, after they were delisted, explaining the decision. I, it was a very good piece, actually. And he really explained that this is a terrorist group. This is a violent group. This is a cult we're not under any illusions about this. Their idea was that this would be a stepping stone to get, you know, for this group to disband, for these people to kind of leave, to leave Iraq because they were in Iraq and there was a lot of issues with them being in Iraq and there was attacks against them to let them to leave Iraq, go elsewhere, disband this group. And that's the kind of, the, the MEK was, you know, has always been irre- irrelevant for Iranians for decades, but, you know, even in the West, and even amongst America and Israel, they had grown irrelevant until Trump came back and all their benefactors and the Bolton types came back. In the Trump era, they kind of reconstituted the MEK and they've fortified you know, their position in Albania, really brought them back into the fore, gave them more legitimacy. They've had these bot armies like we know on social media. Um, so they, yeah, it was really, you know, as, as a tool for this U.S. regime change strategy. All right, leaving MEK aside, let's bring you know bring us up to the start of the Biden administration, and and Biden obviously had run on bringing the U.S. back into the JCPOA. But what what happened from 2018 uh, until we get into the 2020 campaign in terms of the actions that the Trump administration did restoring 
sanctions going beyond uh, what the Obama administration had did, doing things like designating the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which really brought you know uh, brought everybody uh, much closer to war than than I would be comfortable with. Um, and and on the Iranian side, what were the Iranians doing in, in terms of kind of uh, stepping back from the nuclear deal to to sort of try to pressure uh, the the other parties to the agreement to 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 make good on on its promises yeah I mean the 2018 to 2020 time frame from US Iran relations it's it's you know it's for the history books again Trump left the deal in in favor of going you know enacting this maximum pressure campaign and maximum pressure was like we mentioned a regime change strategy you know pompeo attached to it 12 goals and these goals are basically iran totally capitulating to every u.s demand disbanding everything um no role in the region whatsoever giving up its missiles giving up its nuclear program everything very untenable goals you know obviously unrealistic and it was a it, the real goal was regime change and to bring all this unprecedented economic pressure that went beyond anything i mean any sanctions regime in history from from what i've heard and from what it really was you know um and you know they had a goal to reduce iranian oil exports to zero they put you know they put an embargo on iranian oil exports even under the obama era sanctions you know eight countries still had waivers and iran was still exporting enough oil to kind of for its people not to starve for its you know to not to not really collapse the economy but under trump they went for everything you know Block, trying to block all international trade, trying to block oil revenue, you know, to the extent of seizing Iranian gas on, on in the oceans, Iranian kind of oil tank, you know, oil tankers or other vessels carrying Iranian oil and gasoline, seizing that and then selling it and then the U.S. taking the money for itself. You know, it's like an act of piracy. Um, and, you know, keep in mind that, oil, you know, oil is the lifeblood of the Iranian economy, an economy that supports 85 million people. This is not about the Iranian, the, the ugly Islamic Republic regime and all its its kind of it problems, you know, that these kind of collectively punishing sanctions, as you guys, I'm sure, are, are very well aware that, you know, we know of in the academic literature, consistently, these type of sanctions do not really, they, they actually don't really bring about regime change, at least not in the way that the targeted country usually hopes for. They don't bring about major policy change, you know, when they're not, there's no feasible kind of diplomatic goals. They, they actually entrench these authority, you know, authoritarianism, they, and impoverish the people, destroy the middle class, destroy these, these critical ingredients you need for peaceful democratic transition. Like I think for, for, you know, Donald Trump and John Bolton and these, these, you know, authoritarian imperialistic people, I would say in their rhetoric. They all constantly said during the maximum pressure era, we care about the people of Iran. We support them. We hate their government. We're, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to support the people. Meanwhile, in practice, what their policy did was, you know, crush the Iranian middle class, you know, sky really sharply increased the cost of living. People couldn't people like Iranian civil society went from pushing for increased rights and civil liberties and freedoms to pushing for trying to put food on the table and helping people make a base level of living and being able to provide for themselves. So, you know, that, you know, maximum pressure, however you look at it, was a failure. Putting aside the co the humanitarian costs inside Iran, which is immense, catastrophic, you know, amoral. Um, for U.S. interests, you know, what did maximum pressure do? Did it lead to Iran capitulating? Did it lead to the Iranian regime collapsing and some pro-American government taking over? No, 
What it did was destabilize the Middle East. You know, Iran counter-escalated in the region. We've had increase in proxy attacks in Iraq, elsewhere. Um, we saw the U.S. and Iran also almost go to war twice. You know, the first time was when Iran shot down this U.S. surveillance drone in, in uh, June of, was it, I think it was June of 2019. And then that's when Trump almost, you know, he wanted to bomb these sites in Iran. Last minute, he called it off. And then after the Soleimani assassination, um, which, you know, that resulted in Iran launching ballistic missiles and at a U.S. at a base hosting U.S. troops in Iraq and destroying most of that base. You know, those soldiers had to take, you know, they were given advance warning through the Iraqis and the Iranians had signaled that. But almost, you know, a lot of U.S. soldiers almost died. A lot have had traumatic brain injuries after the fact. Um, all this equipment was destroyed. And, you know, that also dealt a huge strategic blow to the U.S. Where for, and from my understanding, it was the first time in decades um, that the you know two nations not officially at war for you know with the U.S. not being officially at war to come under direct missile attack like this and not and you know the strategic implications of that I think you know and the Iranians also hit Saudi Aramco in September 2019. There's a cruise and missile you know cruise missile and drone attack that the Iranians denied that it was them, but either them or an Iranian ally, it seems like. And it took out half of Iranian oil, uh, half of Saudi oil production in one day, in one attack. And, you know, since that time, we've seen the strategic pivot that a lot of these countries have moved towards engagement and are changing their own foreign policies. But regardless, so yeah, maximum pressure destabilized the region. It, it, it has resulted in Iran expanding its nuclear program. So if the goal was to prevent an Iranian nuclear weapon, you know, the way Iran dealt with it was for the first year under Rouhani, Trump left the deal in May of 2018. For the first year, Iran actually had this policy that they called strategic patience. That They did not leave the nuclear deal. They still abided by it fully. You know, the IAEA was confirming it. They did not, you know, stop compliance with any of the nuclear restrictions, anything. They were trying, they were negotiating with Europe and trying to get Europe to kind of, you know, make up for all this lost sanctions revenue and I mean, sanctions relief. Those, you know, obviously there's Europe couldn't do anything because of the secondary U.S. sanctions. They could have actually, I shouldn't say that Europe could have done a lot more. They, they didn't. And the U.S. secondary sanctions scared Europe away from really trying to, you know, offer more to Iran to make up for the U.S. maximum pressure. But, but then one year after maximum pressure, Iran began gradually reducing compliance with the deal. And now we've seen that that's reached a peak. Now Iran is close, you know, it has a more massive nuclear program than it's ever had than it had in 2013 and, you know, 2012. Um, so, see, now I have a question. Point. Yeah. I, I just have a quick question. So it seems like the U.S. doesn't actually give a shit that much about a lot of this stuff, right? We, we went through, like, the details, and I think that's really important. But from a macro perspective, this clearly isn't a U.S. priority. So what do you think is actually driving decisions? If, if, if we're not looking at this, you know, we're, we're not playing risk and this geostrategy, what is actually the major causal factor be, uh, behind how these proceedings have gone in the last five or six years? Because to me, it's, like, clearly not really about geostrategy and not really about even fear of an Iranian bomb. It's got to be something else. And as someone who devotes so much of them their, their career to this, what do you think it is? Well, it's a great question. I mean, one part of it is definitely the political position of Iran and America that, you know, 
and and in U.S. politics to bash Iran to demonize Iran, it's good for politicians. You know, that's how you get money. That's how you get a lot of support. Yeah, you need them as an enemy. You know, like it's much better to have Iran as an enemy because I don't think any U.S. elite fears an Iranian nuclear bomb. I just don't really believe it. Maybe in like the back of their pineal gland or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. they they fear it. But clearly, their actions indicate that this isn't a major threat. Like it was, I think they in the for example during the Cold War there was a real fear of the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons. I don't think that's true about Iran. Yeah, because this is the thing. Uh, I, I I would say there's a fear by proxy. The Israelis fear a nuclear-armed Iran, I think, genuinely. And because Israel uh, has so much influence over American foreign policy and American foreign policy establishment, uh, that fear gets communicated. I don't think the United States is worried that Iran is going to launch a nuke at New York City or anything like that. But um, we've adopted the the concerns that the Israelis have about that outcome. Yeah. And obviously, the Israelis have so much, you know, there's so much political influence in America. When you talk about APAC, so many donors, you know, how that influences, you know, Congress and everything. So I think that's which which feeds into why it's good for U.S. politicians to bash Iran and why they're a useful enemy. So that's ironic. Right. On one hand. There's all these tensions because I think what Derek said is correct that that you, the United States has adopted a genuine Israeli uh, anxiety about Iranian nuclear weapons, but in the process, uh, that sort of feeds into this thing where you kind of need Iran if you're a U.S. politician to demonize in order to fundraise. So there's it, it's like both it, it's sort of like um, a, a dialectic, right? There's a thesis and the antithesis, but there's never going to be a transcendence because they both block at each other in a sense. Interesting. Yeah, I mean one thing that that was straight in line with this was remember in 2016 during one of the debates where one of the democratic presidential debates where hillary clinton was asked like who are you most proud of you know having as your enemy and she's like the iranians right yeah it's like exactly you know to, to get these donors even on the democratic side oh yeah right and it's absolutely I mean, bipartisan. well yeah i'm saban for example i mean yeah. huge democratic donor very uh sort of anti-iran um but it's it's nobody ever like steps back from that to think how absurd it is for the United States, the global superpower. Uh, you ask the the person who was the front runner for the, at the time to be president, who are you proud of being an enemy? And she picks this, I mean, frankly, relatively insignificant. Like Iran is not punching in the weight class of the United States. And to claim them as your great enemy is almost embarrassing, really, in a way. Right. And yeah. that's because the U.S. genuinely doesn't have any enemies, but we've organized the politics around having enemies, both right. discursively and institutionally. So this is the, the old Marxist thing. First a tragedy, then is farce. And I think this is um, replaying now. Exactly. It's like we need an enemy. We need a scapegoat. It's like an organizing principle for the system. So, Sina, as we're coming up here, I think, on on a, uh, an ending, um, take us through... Uh, the last bit of this story, what happened uh, when Biden came into office having be- promised to come back in the deal, which is something he could have done on like day one, um, you know, without any any effort, really. I mean, he could have just undone what Trump did. Um, here we are. It's the end of his or nearing the end of his first year um, in office. 
the United States has still not rejoined the JCPOA. Iran has elected a new, uh, much less friendly to, to w- diplomacy with the West uh, government. Uh, the negotiations feel like they're going in the wrong direction in many ways. Um, take us through this period and, and uh, what and, and maybe, you know, you could uh, end it with, you know, kind of what is your expectation for, for how this is going to end? Yeah, um, it's very sad. You know, Biden came into office promising to go back into the nuclear deal. This is one of his campaign promises. He really kind of strongly criticized Trump's maximum pressure policy, said it was a failure. Um, obviously, Biden was, uh, you know, of the, you know, Obama's vice president who helped negotiate the deal. His whole, t- a lot of his national security team was also involved in a lot of those negotiations under Obama. But at the same time, and this is, you know, testament to the kind of bipartisan obsession with Iran is that, you know, we had this failure of a maximum pressure policy and all the costs that it had for American interests, for the region, for human lives, everything. And then coming into the Biden administration, what did a lot of the kind of democratic national security establishment say? Like, were they saying that America should just go back into the deal immediately and then, and then you know, put the ball in Iran's court for them to go back? No. A lot of them were actually saying that, you know, oh, Trump sanctions give America some leverage, you know, this leverage, all this leverage. You shouldn't just give it up to go back in the deal. Like, we should go back in the deal. We should keep some of this leverage and try to get kind of, you know, more concessions from Iran. Some of the same stuff as Trump to get this this kind of mythical better deal without, you know, ever properly adhering to this first deal. And this is what CNAS and a lot of the kind of more centrist Democratic national security establishment types were saying. So that's, I think, very important for this characterization of the early Biden administration, you know, January, February, March and what they were thinking. Um, I want to I want to stress something in what you you said, because I think it's very important. And part of the reason why this hasn't reached a, a conclusion, the Biden administration and and these kind of center left Democratic Party think tanks came in to power saying we should go to the Iranians and say, hey, we didn't keep our first deal. Now we want you to negotiate another deal with us that's bigger and covers more of your behavior and would res- put more restrictions on other things like your missile programs and your relationships with uh, proxy groups in the Middle East. Uh, even though we didn't abide by the first deal, we want you to do this other deal that's going to be even stronger. And and somehow th- they felt like the Iranians were going to say, oh, yeah, sure, let's do that. Let's yeah. uh, Let's give that a shot. It's insane. It's like you dehumanize the other person. Like you don't like, you know, trust is a basic thing. You know, you have to build trust and confidence to get any, any deal to build on any deal, you know, where there's this kind of colonialist mentality, I would say still kind of deeply ingrained in a lot of, unfortunately, in kind of national security policymakers that that's not even important, you know, but, and we've seen the cost of it, you know, Biden day one should have done an executive order saying that he was going to go back in the JCPOA. Um, and, and if, and then lifting sanctions and beginning that process and then giving Iran a window to go back as well. And then if Iran didn't, then truly, you know, the, maybe the ball could have been put in their court, but the ball is still in America's court because Biden has been, has not reduced any of the sanctions. Maximum pressure is still the policy. None of the sanctions have been removed. There's questions about their level of enforcement and how, how much they're being enforced. But I think that, that a lot of that is speculation. It seems, you know, Iran is under the full, kind of range of of maximum pressure sanctions still. But what did happen is that, you know, 
it was all nothing really. There was no diplomacy to get back in the JCPOA until April. So we lost those a couple of key months where there was a lot of uncertainty. Again, there was this rhetoric coming from a, a lot of these democratic national security people that, you know, people in Tehran were seeing that they're talking about using the leverage. You know, this makes them less distrustful. Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, gave a couple big speeches, you know, reprimanding the U.S. over all that. Again, the, the, there was no effort to help try to rebuild trust after all these Trump, Trump sanctions and Trump era. But then in April, we began the Vienna negotiation. So they, 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 the Biden administration said, we want to go back to the JCPOA. We need to have negotiations to, to figure out how we're going to go back. And so Iran agreed to come to these negotiations, but not to directly negotiate with the U.S. because they're saying the U.S. is no longer party to the nuclear deal. We're going to be negotiating with the other people, the parties to the nuclear deal, the P4, P4 plus one, they call it. So China, uh, the U.K., Britain, or the U.K., France, Germany, uh, and Russia, and and the EU, which is also the coordinator of the talk. So they've been having these negotiations, and the U.S. has just been an ind indirect participant via the EU and other parties negotiating with Iran. But so we had six rounds of negotiations from April to June, which is the Iranian presidential election. And this is another reason why a lot of people told Biden to act fast, because one of the consequences of maximum pressure was that it totally discredited the moderates and reformists in Iran, Rouhani's gov government, you know, this, this kind of foreign minister, Javad Zarif, the kind of moderate, very, you know, fluent in English and pro-diplomacy with the West foreign minister totally discredited them, destroyed their political capital, and it empowered the, the hardline conservative. People are very distrustful and of the West and do not support, you know, big, significantly improved relations with the U.S. and the West. And it really gave them the position inside Iran's system where the, the June presidential election, they, to an unprecedented degree, manipulated and kind of pre-engineered that election for Ebrahim Raisi, this current president, to win. You know, and that's a whole separate discussion. But anyway, so we have this, this conservative government in Iran, which is far more kind of uh, suspicious and, and not supportive of improved ties with the West. And they came, they were inaugurated in August and the talks were basically, they, they stalled. So since they ended in June, they stalled until November 29th of this year. Uh, and with the new Iranian government saying that they needed time to prepare, all the same stuff that Biden, a lot of the same stuff that Biden was saying that they need time to review and prepare and, you know, ascertain their positions and all that. And now, you know, and in the meantime, you know, Iran has expanded its nuclear program. America is still totally out of the deal and continuing all these sanctions. So this created a lot of pessimism, a lot of pessimism r right now that we we've lost this opportunity to restore the nuclear deal that we're headed towards another escalation cycle. Um, but, you know, despite that, I, I think there's reason to be hopeful. I think still the JCPOA is the best uh, option for all sides still, despite, you know, this experience of Trump and all this stuff, even for the Iranians, because the alternatives would be so much worse. That continuing in the escalation cycle would be bad for Iran and the U.S. So these negotiations are continuing. They just... The, the latest round ended on Friday. They're scheduled to restart again towards the end of December in Vienna. Um, they ended on a more positive note, this, this most recent round. So I think there's reason to still be optimistic. But I think one of the consequences of all this stuff, the Trump era, the coming to power of Raisi, you know, that and all this distrust that has developed is that whereas under Obama, the JCPOA promised to be the floor for U.S.-Iran engagement and 
you know, potentially was opening the door to broader engagements, broader negotiations on other issues, kind of a kind of change approach, U.S. approach to kind of Iran and the Middle East at large. I think under Raisi and with, you know, Raisi who's been empowered by, by Trump's policies to come into power that, you know, it's going to be the ceiling for them. You know, the JCPOA is going to be the ceiling. They're not going to want deeper ties with the U.S. or the West beyond the JCPOA. That's that's it's really a hard line, it seems like, that's coming from Raisi and Khamenei and the current Iranian establishment. Why don't we end on this question? One of Kenneth Waltz's final essays was about Iran getting the nuclear bomb that would actually be a stabilizing force in international relations. What do you think about that? So here's the thing. You know, there's this idea that, you know, the mad mullahs of Tehran, that, you know, Iran's leaders are these irrational actors who deterrence is not going to work against them and the second they get a nuclear bomb they're just going to drop it on israel and you know even at the expense of you know iran's iran just being wiped away um that is total nonsense that is total nonsense iran is a is a like i follow iranian politics you know as part of my job regularly i i track what people there are saying um and, you know, in very, very much rational actors for their own self-interest <laughs> interests. I mean, it sounds funny to say, but obviously, um, but I, if anything, very kind of, you know, strat, you know, strategic thinkers for their own interests. Um, but yeah, there's no reason that deterrence wouldn't work against Iran. Absolutely not. Um, it could, you know, in terms of it being a more stabilizing force, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not the best expert on these issues. Um, you know, whether that, you know, what that would mean for other countries in the region developing nuclear weapons, Saudi Arabia, other partners, whether they, you know, how they would feel. Um, but I think at the root of it, you know, what is often, what is always practically unquestioned in U.S. debates about these issues is that there is one country in the Middle East that has nuclear weapons that is not, you know, part of the NPT or does not have any kind of surveillance of the nuclear programs, and that is Israel. Israel introduced nuclear weapons to this region, and that needs to be a part of the discussion that, you know, if Israel is so concerned about Iran's nuclear program, and if it does not think that it can deter Iran, that Iran will be deterred, I think it makes it's very rational for Israel to be like, hey, we will give up our nuclear weapons if you give up your nuclear program. If they're so concerned, you know that. But, um, you know, I think, you know, this idea of a nuclear weapons free zone that, you know, that has been in the United Nations for years, and many people and countries have been supportive of it, I think that should be a, that should be a goal, that, that should be the main focus of you know, international, you know, people work on these issues, NGOs, um, and to get, you know, to stop these weapons from proliferating in the region. And, you know, it starts with, you know, people holding Israel to account over its nuclear weapons. So I think on that note, um, we'll wrap up. Sina, for people who want to follow this story more closely, um, can you tell them, uh, you know, where to find your work and um, the work that NIAC's doing, like the Iran Unfiltered uh, uh, project, which I think yeah. is really great. Yeah. Um, tell, tell people a little bit about uh, that stuff. Yeah, sure. So I have a weekly digest called Iran Unfiltered. If you just Google like NIAC, which is my organization. So I work at this Iranian American advocacy organization called the National Iranian American Council. We work on a lot of issues, including, you know, we support peace and diplomacy between the US and Iran. And I have a weekly digest called Iran Unfiltered. So I track a lot of issues about out of Iran. A lot of it is from Persian translation, um, from Persian sources. And so I think if people are interested in this issue, tracking these nuclear talks going forward, I release it once a week, you can subscribe and get it straight to your inbox. Uh, for our, our work at, at NIAC and my work, I would 
I think the best way to follow our work is through our various social media channels. So my personal Twitter is at Sina Tusi and Nyak is at N-I-A-C Council. So N-I, it's actually N-I-A Council. So yeah, you can follow all our work through our social media. All right. On that note, uh, Sina Tusi, again, thank you for coming on the program. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have you back as, as things develop. I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me.